Oftentimes, it's better to start with creativity to help you learn the facts. Life is too short to learn a, a list of a thousand rando words. From the campus of Stanford University, this is Schools In with your hosts, Dan Schwartz and Denise Pope. Welcome to Schools In. I'm Denise Pope, Senior Lecturer with the Graduate School of Education here at Stanford, and I'm with my co-host, Dan Schwartz, who's Dean of the Graduate School of Education. And I should point out that we are not in the studio today. We are actually broadcasting from our homes and offices due to COVID protocols. Our guest will be doing the same. Uh, Denise, we're back online, Pope. You know, we were so close. It, it, it felt so close that to be easily face to face again. Uh, we're back online, but we could we could be in person. I mean, like we've come a long way, right? We've people are back in classrooms, even though they're wearing masks and vaccines. We've come yeah. a long way. Yes, we but, have. But uh, we have. but yes, there are there are there are issues with with online education. And that is really going to be the theme of the show today. So Ooh, nice bridge. So Very thanks, good. Dan. I have a question for you. Okay. I, this is this is an interesting question that you've thought about, and you you do a lot of work in this area, and as does our guest. What is the problem that online education is supposed to solve? Uh, good. So I'm gonna I'm gonna cut that into two questions. One is what is the problem online education might solve? The other is what is the problem with online education that makes it Just, so it can't solve it? Oh, okay. Oh, okay. Go for it. Go for so, it. So the problem it solves is, uh, by as as an example, is my son. So my son was not a superstar in college. Uh, maybe, maybe that's like a super understatement. Uh, but then, but then he went out in the work world, and uh, after about eight years, he kind of found his way, and he he signed up for an executive MBA. And executive doesn't mean it's for executives. It means it's for people who are still working, although they're aspiring to be executives. And this was a completely online experience because of the pandemic. Uh, they, they met each other outside of class time, and uh, it was very successful for him. And he had the one day they had, they had an in-person graduation at the very end. It was the first time any of these people had met each other. You know, and it seemed like they'd been going out for drinks for years, right? And and so it was really successful. He he learned a set of skills that are going to help him level up in his job, open up new doors. He made lots of friends. I think he learned a lot of content. He would he would tell me how you know how clever he was in his classes and stuff. <laughs> oh, I see. He takes after you. Yes, yes. Except he <laughs> he explains it in slow motion. Uh. How 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 well he did. You know, like a slow motion layup or something. <laughs> So, so that, that brings me to the problem with online education, which is too many people are thinking of it as just putting classes online, right? A, and As opposed to? Uh, putting on a full experience, mm. right? You know, the in-person experience at a university is a lot more than the classes. It's getting to know people. It's identity formation in the dorms. You know, it's getting shared experiences and things like that. And and right now, a lot of the online is very uh, instrumental, and we're going to deliver this academic content. And my theory, and our guest can debunk my theory, but my theory is the reason why these massively online courses didn't work is they actually worked for people who already knew how to be college students and had gone through that experience. It's the ones who didn't have that, and because they didn't have the social surround of their peers, of groups, they dropped out of the online courses. 
because it, it just it didn't play to them. So online ed- education, it can it can bring a lot to a lot of people. You know, it can scale. It can be really satisfying. It can be more niche picking. So you learn specific skills that you might need you know, for a job. What's wrong with it is that everybody's conceptualizing it as classes, right? And, and rather than a full arc of an educational experience, which is more than just learning the academic content. You, you were very patient, Denise. I, I went off for a little bit, but I'm no, I, I'm, I'm really curious to know what our guest thinks of that answer. Uh, I tend to agree with that answer, Dan. I think, I think you have to, I think there's a lot of power in online. I think I've heard already from schools that all of the parent education that they were doing online, like, you know, when the PTA puts on a lecture or something, that's going to stay online. Nobody wants to get in their car and commute back to the school. Nobody wants to find daycare or babysitting for their kids at night and go back to hear a parent lecture, but they want to hear the parent lecture. So there's some things I think are for, that definitely have been working better. Um, and we've heard a lot of things that have not. So yeah, yeah. let's, let's, uh, let's welcome our guest. Okay. Well, I'll do that. Uh, I want to welcome Matthew Raskoff. He's Stanford's new vice provost for digital education. He's basically the new sheriff in town because we, we have, there's a lot of activity around digital education in Stanford, but it's not, uh, it's very decentralized and maybe not as efficient. People aren't learning from each other. So what, what he's doing is leading a new unit on Stanford digital education that has a very distinct mission. And this is to advance education innovation for equity and opportunity. So thank you for joining us, Matthew. Thank you so much for having me. Great to be with you, Denise and Dan, and all of your listeners as well. All right, Denise, can I, can I use your question on Matthew? You go for it. Okay. Hey, Matthew, what is the problem online education might solve? Um, I think we should start with some definition of terms. Because one thing that happened in the pandemic is I I think we got some confusion about what we mean by online education. And, you know, what happened during the pandemic in the field, we don't call it online, actually. And we kind of invented this term of emergency remote teaching specifically to prevent the backlash that we anticipated when people came back to campus and they were like, oh, that was kind of a lackluster experience and we don't want more of that. Emergency remote teaching is limited. It's highly dependent on technologies like synchronous technologies. It doesn't have the time for instructional design, for learning experiences that are really thought through the way you're talking about, Dan. Well-designed online learning, on the other hand, is a team effort that brings together an instructor, instructional designers in their support, and like a holistic approach that takes the needs of a learner into account from the very beginning. And it usually takes months to produce something good that's really online. So I think we should just be careful in our terms so that we don't throw the baby out with the bathwater as we come back to residential education. I think there were some good lessons and some preservable lessons from pandemic teaching, but that's not how anybody in the field would do it. We were asked to take on academic continuity in schools and in higher education. And I'm so impressed by the teachers and administrators and staff around the country who jumped into that, but they would never choose to do it that way in the field. And I think that that's an important start. Sorry, which, which uh, this is, uh, tell me to be quiet, but which is the baby and which is the bathwater in this I, one? I mean, I, I think the, the baby is flexibility 
the baby is students like your son, you know, who are working, who need an opportunity to advance in their skills. And, you know, there are any number of problems that online education can solve. It really depends on what problem you ask the designers to take on. And I think it's really a matter of, of how we position it, not, not, um, you know, necessarily how it's been seen, but, but what we could ask of it. And so I think that's critical. And the bathwater is zoom fatigue. It's, you know, the stress it's the attempting to learn while also caring for children at home or worrying about a global pandemic that's going on around us. Like, I think we're ready to let go of those things. And I, I think most teachers are too. So. Good answer, Matthew. Dan's going to push back a lot and you just keep giving those good answers. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, what what are some of the most exciting experiments or efforts you've seen lately? So I would put this in two categories. I think category one is what's happening in the teaching and learning environment of online classrooms. Category two is kind of the social place of online learning, who has access to it, how we pay for it, and how it's structured. And you know, in the first category, what I would say is that there's an exciting movement to bring evidence-based teaching and learning practices that we have established in face-to-face contexts into the online classroom. So I'm talking about project-based learning and there are companies like you know, Polygens and Pioneer that are doing this. I'm talking about active learning with the Minerva Forum, Engagely, Class for Zoom, a whole new set of technologies that are figuring out how to do these things that we know work that are driven by the learning science stand that you and your colleagues have done and that we are now porting into the online environments. And I think that's super exciting. And in the structural space, what I see is there's a bridging and a boundary crossing of the historic kind of bureaucratic lines of education that online is enabling. So you see now providers like Guild that facilitate employers sponsoring their employees to get an online degree and that's breaking down the boundary between higher education and work in a very productive way. I see, you know, out school and the K-12 space is breaking down the boundary between in school and after school. And I think that can be really productive in arts education. So I, I, I think both of those are really promising and both of them were jump-started by the pandemic and we're going to see lots of innovation coming out of it. This is Schools In with Denise Pope and Dan Schwartz. We are talking with Matthew Raskoff, who's the Vice Provost for Digital Education at Stanford on both the pros and cons, the exciting things and the challenges going on with um, digital education. I want to use the right term because we are not comparing it to what everybody had to throw together in the middle of a pandemic pandemic in March 2020. And I think that's a really important distinction. So can you answer this question that is, I, I think, on a lot of our minds, which is, which is better? I mean, if you had the choice, right, if you had the choice to teach a class online or teach it in person, what would you do? Well, I am teaching in person at Stanford, so uh-huh. I, but I don't have a lot of choice. <laughs> you know, within Stanford, <laughs> we're, we're mostly back to face-to-face and you know, I, I hope we have more opportunities to teach online. I think the question is really more about the audience that you want to reach. And in non-traditional students, for them, the alternative is not a face-to-face small seminar with a great professor, you know, like a graduate school of education professor at Stanford. Um, 
or, or online, it's, it's online or nothing. Mm. And I think you, you have to make sure you're comparing the counterfactual properly. You're giving, you know, the appropriate set of options. And so, yeah, it's wonderful to be in a face-to-face classroom with an instructor. Dan, I agree with you. Dormitory life and residential life and the dining halls, those are formative for students. But the majority of undergraduates in America don't actually experience college that way. The majority of them are actually not residential. They're not 18 to 22. And I think it's important for us to figure out how we design for that new majority. They used to be called the non-traditional students, but they're actually more likely to be working. They're more likely to be parents. They're more likely to be older. And I think it's up to us in education to figure out how we meet their needs. So to me, we we need to set up the options in a fair way, you know? Yeah. So my my proposal was you you should think about uh, a course of study rather than a classroom. So you can sweep in more of the kinds of learnings that really keep people going. Uh, You know, so so, uh, you want someone to fall in love with a discipline, for example, and, and classes maybe aren't the way to do that. Although, you know, project-based learning could be, it could be a way to draw people in. This is Schools In with Denise Pope and Dan Schwartz. We are talking with Matthew Raskoff about the benefits of online learning. And uh, Dan, you said that you could, you want people to fall in love with the discipline. I think a great professor can make someone fall in love with the discipline, whether that's in person or online. I mean, if you can, you can get that energy across there. We, we definitely saw some really exciting things happening in, so in, here, in the school of ed and elsewhere. So let me, let me, you asked the, a question about, you know, which is better. So for me, face-to-face is better. I find the lack of feedback in the online world, you know, it's just, it's an unsatisfying performance if there's no audience. For, so for you as a teacher, for not as, as a, a learner, for you as a teacher. For me as a teacher, face-to-face is better, although I do use a lot of digital tools. But face-to-face, you know, I want them to see my face when I tell bad jokes. You know, there's, it's a sort of a thing. Well, they can see uh, your uh, face uh, on, uh, through the computer screen when you tell that's bad true. jokes. That's true. Yeah. That's true. And now in class, I'm wearing a mask, so they can't tell that I, that was a bad joke I was trying to make. But, you know, for the students, we had an interesting thing, which is uh, – I, you know, I keep track of the course ratings and during the, the, the pandemic, the, the ratings of the instructor and the amount, the students ratings of the instructor and the students rating of how much they learn were higher than when we were face to face. So, so is this, is this, uh, are there percent, are they, were they just saying, boy, those teachers are working so hard. I'm going to give them an extra point. I mean, how do you explain this? I mean, I think that might be a factor, Dan, and I, appreciate the grace that students are willing to give instructors who are going all out to keep the lights on educationally. But I also think there were some really positive factors that I hear faculty asking us to figure out how to preserve. You know, one of them is the Zoom back channel, the chat and the ability to ask a question, you know, and build some ongoing community and, you know, have a chance for feedback Um, Another one I heard about recently was the ability to just project to all the students' screens. It was um, an instructor actually doing a virtual field trip designed, you know, with support from the Graduate School of Education, where they had all the students open their laptop and set up a Zoom, even though it was a face-to-face environment, so they could follow along on a virtual field trip and they could all see what's happening on their device. So, I mean, that's something that was, it was easier to do on Zoom and they kind of needed to recreate the online environment in the face-to-face world. So 
to me, we should be open to the possibilities that came out of the pandemic. And I hope educators are able to listen for this. I really think like we need to be in the mode of um, synthesizing and understanding and processing, because a lot of these memories are going to be forgotten and it's all going to be a bad dream a year from now, hopefully. And I think we have kind of a moment of opportunity right now to distill some of those lessons learned. So in the middle of the pan, I agree with you, Matthew. And I, and I, and in the middle of the pandemic, someone said to me, look, good teaching is good teaching. If you're a good teacher, you can teach really well online and you could teach really well in person. You think that's true? I don't think that's true because, you know, I have a kindergartner and I remember, you know, the first day of like their school's noble effort to do Zoom kindergarten with him, there was something on the Zoom and he couldn't read yet. And there was like a dialogue box on the screen where you had to like click OK or cancel, but he couldn't read. So he, he didn't know what was going on and he, he couldn't move on to the next thing. So that's not good or bad teaching. That's, you know, the modality does actually matter. And I don't think these technologies are neutral. I think they actually have a valence. And that's why ed tech design matters a great deal. You can embed active learning practices in the technology or the opposite. You can embed bad practices in the technology. And even the greatest instructor can't subvert a bad technology and vice versa. Great technologies can't make bad teaching good. And I think that's really important. And that's different from the technologically mediated teaching world. So, Matt, the the, the first uh, version of this that became really public was university professors putting lectures online. Right. And, and it went to scale. Uh, they, the MOOCs, massively online courses. And uh, there's a lot of excitement about that. Did, did any of the companies who were making these online courses uh, was that was that their main business or did they to survive? Did they have to switch to like a large broad based provider of other services besides just online classes? Um, I mean, there is an evolution that's happening in the MOOC industry. And, you know, many of those companies have done really well in the pandemic and they saw usage you know, skyrocket. Um, it is interesting to see, you know, some of the disruptive players, they claim to be supplanting higher education are now actually turning to online degrees and are figuring out how to partner with the traditional credit bearing part of what we do in higher ed. That, that is an interesting turn of events. And I think it, it shows that some of these technologies are actually more likely to be sustaining innovations than disruptive innovations in, wow. in the language of kind of like the innovation literature. Wow, that's really interesting. This is Schools In with Denise Pope and Dan Schwartz. We will have more with Matthew Raskoff talking about the advantages of online education next on SiriusXM. This is Schools In. I'm not an expert at this. I'm more expert than you. When you can't read in American society, you are really left out. With Dan Schwartz and Denise Pope from the campus of Stanford University. Welcome back to Schools In with Dan Schwartz and Denise Pope. We are talking with Matthew Raskoff, who is the Vice Provost for Digital Education, about the good, the bad, the ugly of different <laughs> forms of online learning. Yeah, so we, we uh, stopped on this idea that one of the things the university brings to online education is credibility, brand. You know, it's, we're known for high quality. Uh, I don't know if this is something universities can have a monopoly on. So like Google is now offering sort of Google course credit and, you know, will these giant 
giant industries that are quite successful become as credible for teaching. So let, I, I want to ask uh, Matthew, what, what is, you know, the unique role of a research one university with respect to uh, digital learning? You, you have a mission statement, which is to advance education innovation for equity and opportunity. So maybe you could talk a little bit about what the motivation is for that. Absolutely. Um, thank you so much, Dan, for that question. I mean, the way I think about this is that you know, online education needs to be tied in more closely to the mission of the research university. All research universities have a shared mission of research, teaching, and service. And I think online education needs to actually plug in to that whole you know, interwoven um, cord that is, it's, it's impossible to disentangle. And I think there's, you know, the research component means, can we find ways to understand how to improve using science, using psychology, using cognitive, you know, um, research. And I think that's hugely important. And that's a real reason why research universities should be playing in this space. In terms of education, you know, we have, you know, some of the smartest, greatest instructors in the world. We have some of the brightest students. We have alumni spread around the world. Like, how can we use the incredible knowledge resources for the benefit of society? And, you know, a, a tiny slice of our society gets to come to a place like Stanford or any other great university. I think we have a responsibility to figure out how we share what we do here much more widely with our communities, with our country and with the wider world. And that's actually a form of service. I think that's actually, it's an expression of education as a form of community service. So that, that's kind of how I see it. And you know, at Stanford, we have so many opportunities, so many privileges. And I think it's, it's really incumbent on us to figure out how we can share those more widely and address some of the deep problems that have emerged in society during the pandemic and, and overcome them. And I think that, that's where you know, the equity challenges have to come in for me. But I, you know, I, what faculty used to do is write a book, write a trade book for people to read. Uh, but now, now we should do it. Uh, we can make it more interactive, more interesting instead of a book as a I way to disseminate. Yeah. I mean, trade books and, you know, dissemination are fantastic. I, I think of this as, you know, another set of tools in our toolkit that go beyond, you know, just publishing something, but also have the opportunity for interaction that have the opportunity for identity formation. That's part of what happens as you were describing in the dormitory and the residence hall and in a well-designed online course, you actually can shape somebody's identity. And I, I think it's, we have to figure out how do we use the best technologies and tools that are out there. And in the Gutenberg era, it absolutely was the book. Now we have many other tools at our disposal, not that they're for everybody, but, but at least we should make them available for those faculty and you know, our community that wants to use them as part of, part of their impact on the world. So what, what, are your, what are your current thoughts for how to do this at Stanford? So we have a pilot project that I'm very excited to share with your listeners. It's with a nonprofit organization called the National Education Equity Lab. And this is Stanford's first dual enrollment program, meaning it's an opportunity for high school students to take a course, both for high school and for college credit at the same time. Um, our initial course is an introduction to computing. It's in partnership with the computer science department at Stanford, the Graduate School of Education and their professional development team, and the National Education Equity Lab. And it, the model is a hybrid model, so it's not a fully online experience. It's high school students in school, in the classroom with a local teacher, 
spread across the country in 15 Title I schools across the country, so just focused on low-income communities. And, and the hybrid is that we offer online content, online assessments created by Stanford. The local teacher is supporting the student, and we're bringing in a section leader or a teaching fellow who's a Stanford grad student, advanced undergrad, or alum who's there to provide office hours and support and coaching and mentoring, which I think is really critical to building out that social layer of learning in addition to the content. And it's a really exciting project for us. And to me, it's an exemplar of what a mission-driven digital learning strategy at a research university could look like. This is Schools In with Dan Schwartz and Denise Pope. We are talking with Matthew Raskoff about an exciting dual enrollment possibility where kids can actually take Stanford courses and get credit for them, uh, which of course has been happening forever in terms of kids have been allowed to take Stanford courses in the summer. Kids can uh, take dual enrollment courses all over, but you're talking about some unique differences, Matthew. It's not just your everyday dual enrollment. I mean, I think there's something special about doing this in partnership with schools, in partnership with teachers and during the school year. And one of what the things that makes it special is that this is a professional development experience for those teachers, that they're growing in their practice alongside their students. And one framework that I used to think about this is a kind of digitally enabled lab school where the teachers and the students are both growing at the same time and that we've interwoven professional learning for teachers with a learning experience for students. That's really powerful. And that's not available in the typical summer school. You actually have to be there during the school year, during the school day, in order to create that tighter feedback loop between professional learning and student learning. Yeah. And and maybe, just maybe, some of the Stanford professors will learn something about pedagogy from the kids and the teachers in the schools, right? I'd like to see it be really both ways. Absolutely. I mean, that's that's the beauty of what happens in learning communities, that it's it's you know, bi-directional, more than bi-directional. It's multilateral in all directions. Very exciting. Yeah, no, I think this is fabulous. So uh, I, there's so many pieces of it that, that really resonate. Uh, adding adding the, uh, the basically section leaders who add a more, a more personal touch, uh, allowing the teachers to interpret what's being beamed out of Stanford. If I had one beef with it, can you guess what it is? If I have one, one complaint. Too small. No. <laughs> no, the no, no. Are I, too small. No, no, no. I think you're right to start, to start and really get it right before you go to scale. No, it's that, that we chose computer science. Like everybody's teaching computer science. Mm. We, and every, we should, online even. A lot of people are teaching yeah, computer science. Yeah, yeah. We, we should, look, we have a big initiative on sustainability. We should offer a course on sustainability. It's true. Uh, can I answer, Matthew? <laughs> it's just- yes, and then I'll try to jump in. <laughs> okay, I will just say this. Not a lot of high school courses out there on sustainability, Dan. So if you want the partnership, you've got to partner with something that's actually in the K-12 curriculum. But Matthew. Why? Why? Let's, let's turn it it's to Matthew. College, it's college credit. It's an elective. Because you want the teacher there to help. Okay, Matthew, I'm answering for you. Go, I mean, go. My view is full catalog education. Um, it's a term from Stephen Strogatz, the mathematician at Cornell, whom I love. And the idea is that at a great research university, we have every single area of knowledge 
you know, covered. And you know, the catalog includes expertise and you know, faculty who can basically help you learn anything that has ever been known in the world. Thank you. Thank you for being here. Thank you all for listening to Schools In with Dan Schwartz and Denise Pope. If you missed any of this episode, listen anytime on demand with the SiriusXM app and anywhere you listen to podcasts. From the campus of Stanford University, this has been Schools In with Dan Schwartz and Denise Poe on Sirius XM Business Radio. If you missed any of it, listen on demand, online, or with the Sirius XM app.